This is exactly right. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. This is one of the strangest and most bizarre cover-ups in the history of American criminal justice. Something really strange happened here, much stranger than fiction. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. One of the most studied murder trials in recent history is the case of Kathleen Peterson, which was featured in the TV series, The Staircase. Author Titty Smith recounts the story in his book, Death by Talons, and he focuses on the most controversial part of the case, the owl theory. For the 1% of our audience who doesn't know anything about this case, can you give me the shorthand of what happens in December of 2001 in North Carolina with the Petersons at their home? So on December the 9th, 2001, A 911 call was made by Michael Peterson at 2.40 a.m. And the 911 operator hears Michael saying, quick, come, my wife's had an accident, she's still breathing. And the operator says, what kind of accident? And Michael says, she fell down the stairs, she's still breathing, please come. Now that was at 2.40 a.m. At 2.46 a.m., so just six minutes later, he calls again. And this time he says, She stopped breathing. Where are they? And he's sort of frantic. And in fact, the operator just writes down a single word. She wrote down the word hysterical. Now, when the paramedics arrive, they find Michael Peterson in the stairwell holding his wife's body. So this was Kathleen Peterson. And she is covered in blood, absolutely drenched. Her hair is drenched in blood. The walls of the stairwell are covered in splatter stains and smear stains and wipes and some strange blood spatter shadows. And when the paramedics check, they find that Kathleen is pretty dead, well dead, they think. She's been dead for quite some time, they believe. Now, the fire officers who arrive shortly after the paramedics, they walk through the door, and they see Kathleen lying there. They see Michael clutching his wife. He's also got blood on his pants now. He's been holding the body for some time, it seems. When the fire officers enter through that door, they take one look behind and they see that the back of the door is covered in wipes of red blood, great big smear stains. So obviously, when the police arrive shortly after, they know a fall didn't happen. Because you can't fall down the stairs, they reason. And 
smear blood all over a front door, you know, in a separate room, quite a few metres away. It's really at that point that these two theories about what happened to Kathleen are set in stone, right? Either she fell down the stairs or at the base of the stairs, as her husband claimed, or she was beaten to death in a brutal homicide by that husband who was now just crying crocodile tears. Now, one point about Kathleen's body that's important to note is that the severe injuries were all found to the back of her head. She had deep lacerations that went down to the skull, and yet there was no bruising to her brain, and her skull wasn't in fact fractured at all. All that she seemed to have died of were these serious lacerations to the back of her head. Another strange fact about the state of her body was that when she was found, she was holding more than 60 of her own hairs that she had wrenched out from the roots. Around her body were also found, to the astonishment of some of the detectives who arrived, a scattering of pine needles that they couldn't understand why this body, this dead body of this man's wife was covered in pine needles. Michael is eventually put to trial, and at trial, only the two most obvious theories were put to the jury. Either she fell at the base of the stairs and had a terrible accident, lacerating her scalp and bleeding to death, or she was beaten to death in the stairwell by, the prosecution argued, a fireplace blowpoke that usually sat beside the fireplace, but that Michael had used as an improvised weapon, which he then fled out the house and disposed of at some point. What is the prosecutor's theory of the motive of why this would even happen, why Michael Peterson would murder his wife. In terms of motive, the prosecution actually had two arguments that really contradicted each other subtly, because the first argument is that Michael had killed Kathleen because he suspected that Kathleen was about to be made destitute. Kathleen worked for the telecommunications giant Nortel as a director of information services. She had climbed up the company ladder there and was now, you know, earning a six-figure income. So the theory of the prosecution went that Michael, anticipating Kathleen's redundancy, murders Kathleen in order to collect the life insurance policy. Now, part of the reason that Michael was supposed to have done this is that the family were quite heavily in debt. They were in debt to the tune of around $150,000 in the day's money. It pays to remember as well that her life insurance policy was for around about $1.2 million. So around about, you know, we're looking at about 10 times as much money from her death as from her life. However, there's not really much evidence that Kathleen did think she was about to be made redundant. Michael didn't seem to believe that she would be made redundant. And really, this argument was something of a figment of the state's imagination. Yes, it's true that the family were heavily in debt, but then again, they owned the largest domestic property in all of Durham. Michael's first book, A Time of War, was sold to Simon & Schuster for $600,000 as an advance. Wow. This was an absurdly wealthy family. If they had needed to, they could have sold the house that they lived in in Durham and bought another mansion pretty much equally as good. They really weren't the sort of family that you could call in financial straits. So although 100000 to 150000 in debt sounds like a lot to the average person, this was not the average family. What is Nortel saying? Are they saying that she was going to be rift or let go? 
All that we know about Nortel's intentions with regard to Kathleen is that she had very briefly been on a list of candidates' names who may have been made redundant. But when I say briefly, that's really quite an understatement. Apparently, she was on this list for about three days before she was promptly removed from it. Now, nobody knew about this. Kathleen didn't know about it. Michael didn't know about it. The only evidence that we have is the fact that Nortel was not looking like a strong company. Okay. In fact, in the year that Kathleen died, they had already laid off more than half of their workforce of 94,000 workers. They had gone through the largest losses of any listed company in the stock exchange. So they were a seriously dwindling company, and it was only around seven or eight years after Kathleen died that the company went bankrupt. So this is a theory that we don't take seriously, this theory, it sounds like. Well, it's speculation. I mean, perhaps if Michael did it, maybe that was what he was thinking. But you really do need to get quite imaginative and get inside his brain. When you talk about motive for a crime and you talk about financial motive in a, in a legal case, you usually need to draw a direct line between the state of the finances and murder. And there just isn't that line here. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the other theory, which is the one that really we hear the most about in the staircase. That's right. So the other theory, and this is not a theory. In fact, this is a fact. Michael was bisexual. He's open about this. And the theory goes that on the night that Kathleen died, she had in fact opened Michael's inbox and she discovered Michael contacting or emailing a male sex worker who he was seeking to have liaisons with. The idea goes that on discovering these sordid exchanges, Kathleen is aghast, she confronts Michael, rage takes over, they fight, and eventually Michael corners Kathleen in the stairwell with the fireplace blowpoke and beats her to death. So once again, like the theory that Michael had killed Kathleen for financial gain, there's very little evidence that Michael killed Kathleen because she discovered any emails. So, for example, there's no evidence that Michael's email was, in fact, accessed on the night that she died. So we have no reason to believe that Kathleen did discover this fact about Michael. And, in fact, even the family or some members of the family claimed that it was something of an open secret, that Michael's sexuality was an accepted fact between the couple. But once again, we don't really know. We don't have much evidence on which we can base any conclusions on this fact. All we know is that Michael was bisexual. He may have been seeking extramarital liaisons with men. And uh, we have no idea if Kathleen knew about this or not. So we see in the series, you have some forensic specialists, including Henry Lee, come in and look at the bloodstain pattern and they make some predictions. So can you tell me the facts? So we've talked about there's blood around the staircase and blood in a different room. What is indisputable that everyone agrees on in this case? And then we can move forward with the different theories. So we've already said that on the back of the front door, there were great smears of red blood. Again, not a fingerprint or two, not a handprint. These are smears as though there's been some great action at the back of the front door. In the frame of the door, in other words, where the latch meets the lock, all in that area inside the frame, there is blood smeared. Again, very strange for there to be blood there if you fell down the steps. Outside the house, 
on the paving stones of the path are at least two drops of blood that seem to have been deposited by an object or person actively dripping fresh blood. So this was very difficult to explain, in fact, on either theory, on either the fall or the murder theory. Now, when we come to a discussion of the blood inside the stairwell, it's almost impossible to characterize this in words. There were a vast number of spatter stains, smear stains, wipes. When the scene was finally submitted to analysis, it was discovered that there were more than 10,000 individual spots of blood, many having been flung at high velocity, although at very strange angles. Very few were flung, say, overhead, as you might expect in the case of a murder. And strangest of all, there were areas within the stairwell that should have had blood on them that didn't. So in fact, stranger than all the blood in the stairwell was where there was no blood. Hmm. On the north wall of the stairwell, there was an area of blood around about two foot wide, one foot high, where there just seemed to be nothing there. It should have had spray, it should have had spatter. It was almost as though something had got in the road between Kathleen's head wounds and the wall, yet there was no blood there. And then, once again, on the two bottom steps of the stairwell, there was very little blood, which made no sense because these were the steps on which Kathleen's head was resting and her only serious injuries were to the head. So this is a very confusing scene. Apart from those facts of the blood spatter, there were two other marks that were very important to the prosecution's case. And that was that there were two wipe marks on opposite sides of step 17. These were about an inch high, a couple of inches across, and the state argued that Michael had wiped these clean in an effort to tidy up the scene. But it really doesn't make much sense when you look at the tremendous amount of blood in the stairwell why he would focus his attention on two tiny areas of skirting board, which is apparently what they think he did. Now, there are other areas of blood that are disputed. Importantly, in the kitchen, the forensic team claimed to have found blood on the kitchen benches and on the kitchen cabinets. However, this blood was never photographed, this blood was never filmed, and the blood was never given a forensic test. So at trial, all that was given was the testimony of the officers. Now, that's what's disputed, but what is not disputed is, is the other three areas that we just went over, the door, the front path, and the stairwell. Okay. So let's get this out of the way. Is there blood on Michael Peterson at all that would indicate that he was involved in, you know, a violent fight or a push or something with his wife? Or is it simply he's grasping her and it's explainable whatever is on him? Well, I think I think any blood spatter that's on him is explainable. The prosecution made a lot of the fact that there was a, a blood splatter stain on the inside of his shorts that could only have got there, they argued, if he had been standing over Kathleen while blood was spraying. Now, that was the only area that the prosecution really argued was suggestive of Michael's involvement. Apart from that, on his clothes, we're really just looking at transfer stains and what seemed to be diluted blood. Mm -hmm. Now, this is complicated by the fact that Kathleen appears to have urinated while she was dying. Mm -hmm. So there appears to have been wet, urine-soaked blood around her body, probably around Michael's body as he's holding her. 
But there's evidence that links Michael directly to Kathleen in the blood transfer evidence. And that's the fact that on Kathleen's sweatpants, a footprint or rather a shoe print from one of Michael's tennis sneakers was found at the base sort of around her ankle. But again, it's a mark that's very restricted in movement. It's pointing towards her toe rather than towards her head, as you'd expect if he was standing on her and beating her. Um, so there's, there's not much in Michael. Michael had bloody shorts. His shorts were really stained with blood. Other than this, there wasn't much in the way of, say, splatter stains or anything all that incriminating. It is suggestive of him clutching his wife who was soaked in blood. My second book was about a forensic scientist who investigated a case of a woman who died in a bathtub and the state accused her husband of beating her to death with a lead pipe. And my forensic scientist ended up jumping from the prosecution to the defense. And what his point was is that all the blood that was found on the suspect, who was his client, was blood that was mixed with the water from the bathtub. There was no arterial blood. With the exception of the blood that was mixed with Kathleen's urine, what could they tell? Could they see whether or not this was arterial blood on him? I mean, is there a way to prove that he was in close proximity beating her versus clutching her? Or was that just not an option in this case? Well, once again, the only thing that indicated something like an arterial spray was the spray on the inside of his shorts, which was really quite a small area on the inside of his shorts. Okay. Then again, because the blood seemed to be diluted, you have great difficulty drawing conclusions here. Right. Uh, you can infer that it's diluted by urine or maybe by water or whatever, but at the end of the day, you can't see how the stains may have been, say, originally, before they may have been diluted, perhaps, if he had been wanting to cover the marks on his shorts. So it's underdetermined. You can't really tell one way or the other. And what about the fireplace poker? No blood found on that. I remember in the series it being very controversial because it was missing and then it was found sort of in their basement maybe and it had never been removed. And so there was a lot of confusion around the origin of that fireplace poker. But all answers would be, is there blood on there, the accused weapon or not? No. Well, well, there didn't appear to be. It was never tested. The prosecution had the opportunity to test it if they wanted to, and they chose not to. But there's a fact about the fireplace blowpoke that is more interesting than the fact that it was discovered near the end of the trial and was found to be not dented, not covered in blood or hair or anything like that. And the interesting thing is that, in fact, the police had already discovered it in 2002. They had photographed it before the trial had commenced. They withheld that information from the defence throughout the entire trial. So this was a serious miscarriage of justice here. You know, they searched that house from top to bottom and they did, in fact, find the blowpoke in 2002. I believe it was in June of 2002. Dan George and Eric Campen were the forensic analysts who discovered it. They photographed it and they put it back where it was. And despite the fact that they sat through the entire trial, during which it was argued that the blowpoke was the weapon that had killed Kathleen, they never said a word. Hey! 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tell me about this owl theory of Larry Pollard's. What happens? Because I guess I was very confused by the series. I was picturing her at the top of the stairs and an owl flying in and grabbing her by her hair and she falls down the stairs. But that doesn't sound like what the theory is. What does Larry say he believes happened based on the wound pattern on her scalp? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned what you thought it might have looked like originally, because that's what most people think the argument is. And it sounds stupid, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and, and Larry received a great deal of ridicule because of the fact that it sounds stupid and it sounds outlandish. But the theory is not that somehow an owl got inside the house and crept up on Kathleen and pushed her down the stairs. The theory is that Kathleen was outside arranging the last of the Christmas decorations, which Larry saw had just been set up the previous night. On December the 9th, when he emerged to see all of the police cars around, he saw that there was a balsa wood reindeer at the front path that had not been there the previous night. Now, his theory goes that this is how you explain the drops of blood on the front path, and that in fact, the drops on the front path are the first drops of her blood. Those are the drops that are leading the way to her body. It's not the other way around, like the prosecution thought. The prosecution believed that Kathleen had been beaten to death by Michael, and then Michael carried the weapon out the door, down the path, dripping blood. Huh. Larry believed what had happened was the drops of blood had been left when an owl attacked Kathleen on the front path, causing these serious lacerations to her scalp, and then Kathleen runs up the path, through the open door and at the stairwell as she's about to run up maybe to the upstairs bathroom or something, she slips on her own blood and bangs her head, causing a concussion, which combined with these deep lacerations causes her to just bleed out while unconscious. That's all that Larry's theory is. It's not that much more complicated than that. But again, like you showed really well, I think most people think it has something to do with an owl inside the house pushing her down the stairs or something. The evidence that Larry had for his theory. Firstly, he had the wounds on the back of Kathleen's head. That was the first thing that made him think of a bird. And in fact, the first thing he thought was turkey. Mm -hmm. Then he realised, oh, it was late at night, maybe owl. Now, once he began to realise that it could have been an owl, he asked for more photos of the autopsy scene and he found that Kathleen's elbows had been pierced three times apiece like the points of equilateral triangles. Now, these are suggestive of what would be talon punctures if Kathleen was attempting to cover her head. And there were other injuries on Kathleen's face that were compatible with, say, the grasp of talons or the kick of talons against the face. All of these wounds are very close to the eyes, it pays to mention, which is where huh. most owls and bird of prey and their prior attacks on humans tend to focus their attacks. 
Well, now I have many questions about owls when we get to that. And the behavior of owls, we have owls in our yard, and now I am concerned. I've always been concerned because we have smallish dogs. First of all, I remember, and I don't know if it was Larry who said this, but I remember people saying when this issue was brought up that this is not unprecedented. Her death might have been, but that owl attacks were not unusual in this area of North Carolina. Absolutely. Um, And you should be concerned if you have small dogs that run around the yard at night or anything like that. In fact, I'm rather proud of the fact that the book has an entire chapter dedicated to the history of owl attacks in North America over the last hundred years or so. I mean, there are several serious attacks on humans every year. And yeah, several small dogs have been killed. Cats are killed all the time. In fact, a Gordon setter was once killed by an owl, which is a relatively large dog. Wow. But Kathleen's death was not, in fact, unprecedented in the history of owl attacks on human beings. And I discussed the case of a Californian trucker, a man called Robert Schmidt, who died in 1985 after colliding, in fact, with an owl on a California roadside. And this was an absolute mystery for the coroners of the day to explain. So when you look at the uh, attack of Robert Schmidt and you look also at the more severe attacks on other humans that have occurred over the last hundred years, attacks that have led to lost eyes, serious lacerations to the scalp, limbs injured, even loss of hearing in some cases, it's really not that surprising that a large bird of prey, an owl in this case, could inflict life-threatening or, in fact, fatal injuries on human beings. Is there a way to test owl DNA to find out if the wounds in her head have any sort of biological connection to a bird of prey? Well, that's what Larry wanted to do. Larry wanted to see if he could have Kathleen's body exhumed to test for the presence of owl DNA. And look, I'm not a geneticist. I don't know if you can do that or not. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't all that Larry did. He actually requested, or rather he wrote a letter to the district attorney asking them directly, look, were any feathers discovered in the course of the investigation? You know, feathers that might link an owl to the death. And Larry received a reply from the DA that simply said, Dear Larry, we appreciate your letter. Uh, We're pretty confident that the jury made the right yada yada. Mm. No feathers were discovered during the yada yada. Thanks very much, the DA. Now, Larry because he had previously worked at the Special Prosecutor's Division in Durham, he thought to himself, well, I'm I'm not 100% sure that I believe that. So he went behind the DA's back to his old place of work, and he said, look, do you think I could get that trace evidence report in the Peterson case? And a friend of his said, yeah, all right, Larry, we'll sort it out for you. He got the trace evidence report, he started reading it, and just on the very first page, a few lines down, there was reference made to a microscope slide with one of Kathleen's hairs on it. Full description, page three. So Larry flicked through to the description and it said, colour, straw, pulled from the root, blood noted on hair shaft, in shaft, a feather. Mm. And Larry was absolutely shocked by this. He obviously was angry as hell, threw down the papers and demanded to have a look at the uh, microscope slide. When he eventually had a look at this microscope slide with the assistance of an expert, that's when they found there and then in the district attorney's office that the original report had made an error. This was not one feather, this was two. There were two feather fragments attached 
in blood to the hair shaft. This was the evidence on which Larry tried to base a motion for appropriate relief to have Michael's guilty verdict vacated. The splatters and the bloodstain pattern, is that at this point, do you think, junk science in this case or misleading in all different directions in this case? Is there a way for the blood to tell a definitive story about what happened, including the owl theory? Well... That's a very difficult question to answer because when you're doing an analysis of anything, theory comes into it. Now, if you want to explain how the blood could have been consistent with a fall, of course you'll be able to. You'll come up with all sorts of auxiliary hypotheses that help you explain how it might have happened in such and such a way. Or if you want to explain it in terms of a murder, well, of course you're going to be able to find a way. You'll just say, well, he must have hit her like this, or he must have hit her like that. And if you want to explain it in terms of... I mean, (laughs) this is just the problem of theories imbue data with their interpretations. So it's not so much that blood spatter analysis is junk science. It's the fact that if you have a trial where everyone is competing to win for their side everyone's going to find a way to make their evidence compatible with the... I mean, that's just what a a criminal trial is, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think if you've got an impartial, very difficult thing to find, but I think if you found an impartial blood spatter technician to have a look at that scene and what it truly showed, I'm sure you would have found a very different result to anything that Henry Lee or Dwayne Deaver might have said. I think both of their accounts were radically wrong. In fact, most people with a working brain can see that it was really quite obviously wrong. That theory, when we have this discovery of, you know, feathers at the scene in her hair, does that sway anybody at that point, the defense or the prosecution? Oh, this is this is well past that point, though. Right. So Larry put forward a motion for appropriate relief in which he cited the discovery of the new feathers. They shot it down. The district attorney shot it down as, quote, ridiculous, uh, phantasmagorical or whatever the word is. (laughs) And, um, I mean, they just ridiculed it. The discovery of the new feathers did change many minds, I think, around Durham, around the world, because this was now a worldwide famous trial. But, you know, at the same time, uh, these were very small feather fragments that were discovered And anybody who wished to continue to believe that Michael was the murderer could simply say, well, maybe Kathleen had a ripped duvet or maybe her pillow was a bit holy or, you know, there's always a way you can explain these things away. But the fact of the matter is Larry predicted by the power of sheer deduction that there should be feathers in her hair. Mm -hmm. That's quite a remarkable thing. But you said he was ridiculed after that happened, aside from the prosecution. Is this also in the media? Was he questioned a lot? Did he feel harassed? Larry had a dreadful time after first putting forward his theory. He first put forward the theory around about December of 2003, so a couple of months after the trial had finished, the first trial. There was a media frenzy in the aftermath, really. I mean, the collective gasp of Durham was just deafening. He was uh, relentlessly mocked, ridiculed, found it difficult to walk down the street, go into town. And, you know, his poor wife, who stood beside him the whole way, believing he might have been onto something, you know, would have to tell herself daily, you know, for better, for worse, for better, for worse. It had a terrible strain on their marriage. 
And but he he didn't give up, you know. He kept working, and in many ways, you know, this book is a story about being strong in the face of ridicule hmm. and being strong in the face of the doubt of your peers. And Larry is perhaps, he's a very, very strong example of that strength of character, and I commend him for that. Even though, as you'll see in my book, you'll find I think that he got things ever so slightly wrong. What do you think he got wrong? Larry believed that the bird attacked Kathleen outside that it then sort of swooped away off her head before she fell on the stairwell. My theory is that, in fact, the bird remained connected to her head as she ran into the house and inside the stairwell. And that opens an incredibly large can of worms about how this case really stands. But there is a lot of evidence to recommend it. In fact, I think there's a lot more evidence to recommend it than Larry's original theory. Do animal experts, experts in owl behavior, agree with Larry's theory that this is something that is viable, that this is something an owl would do, and it could create the amount of damage that we're talking about on her elbows and on her scalp? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it was uh, most of the expert witnesses who Larry attached to the motion for appropriate relief were ornithologists. And they were all in unison that this is perfectly within the repertoire of large birds of prey. In fact, one ornithologist called Kate Davis, who runs an organization called Raptors of the Rockies in Montana, she said that she was kind of shocked because when she saw photos of the autopsy and saw the shape of the wounds, of these little puncture marks around Kathleen's eyes, she remembered that a colleague of her had been attacked around two or three years before, by a spotted owl, which is a close relative of the barred owl, and that it left almost identical impressions on her colleague's face. What is the defense's reaction to all of this? I know this comes two years later, right, after the initial charges. And what is Michael Peterson's reaction to this theory of Larry's? So far as I understand it now, Michael believes that an owl was involved. But more importantly, I think, is what the defense thought of the theory. Larry approached the defense lawyers just around the close of the trial. And he said to them, look, I've got this theory. I don't know what you're going to make of it. I have a feeling an owl might be responsible for Kathleen's death. And um, they just shrugged it off, really. Once the trial was over and Michael was found guilty, they admitted that they had no part in this theory and wouldn't be pursuing it. And it seems that they believed that the only hope for Michael's release and for Michael's freedom was to pursue these more specific procedural problems in the original trial. In other words, to say, well, Dwayne Deva, you know, he's had this history of prior cases where he's been a liar and, um, you know, look at Dan George's behavior in the crime scene video. Why are there so many cuts through the video? And, you know, they wanted to really base their claim for a retrial on procedural matters rather than developing an entirely new and quite outrageous theory that they thought no jury would buy. So where do things end up with Larry? Is he just ridiculed and then slowly the whole story fades away? Because I know that this has been two decades since this has all really been in the news consistently. 
Well, for anyone unfamiliar with the case, it's probably important to note that the end was reached when Michael Peterson took what's called an Alford plea. Mm -hmm. And that means that he pled guilty to manslaughter when a new trial was ordered. But he pled guilty in the understanding that he was pleading guilty because he believed any reasonable jury would likely find him guilty. In other words, he wasn't saying, I am guilty, and so I plead guilty. Mm -hmm. He was saying, look, I didn't do it, but any reasonable jury will find me guilty, so I'll plead guilty. So he was released after pleading guilty to this lesser charge of manslaughter because he was subject to time already served. So then he was free, and that was the end of it. So he spent eight years inside, a retrial was called, and he pled guilty under this Alford plea arrangement. Now, as for Larry, that was the end of it too. It might not have been the end of his attempts to regain some standing and to regain some honour and some sense of dignity through the dissemination of this theory through the media, but it was very much the end of any further legal challenges that might be mounted. And as a lawyer himself, this was probably the most upsetting thing, that he could never present his case in court. What do you think most Americans who know this story really think happened? Where do you think most people fall, particularly after seeing the staircase, that he was guilty, that he was innocent, that this owl did it? I really like that question. <laughs> I think um, I think the majority of people think Michael did it. And they think he did it because he was bisexual and he was secretive and he was behaving strangely. And, and frankly, you know, let's be honest, he's a weirdo. He's a complete bloody weirdo. He seems like a strange man. He's off-putting, for sure, but, but that doesn't make him guilty. No, absolutely. I'm a weirdo, and I hope any, <laughs> if an owl attacked my wife, I hope they wouldn't go, well, he was always a weirdo, so put him away. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, Michael was a bloody weirdo. You know, and maybe that's why I've written this book, you know, as a, as a weirdo myself, I have some sympathy for him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, but, and let's be clear, I want to actually be quite clear about this. There are many episodes in the history of Michael Peterson's life that are not very pristine, that are not very clear. There's very strong evidence that he has lied about very serious things. There's some evidence indicating that he may have killed other people in the past. This book is not intended to defend Michael Peterson or even really to defend his innocence. It's certainly not meant to defend the idea that he's a great person. Right. This book is only a discussion of the evidence in this case and what it best supports. This is one of the things that annoys me about this case is that people seem to think that it's very simple. It's not simple at all. And I think, in fact, this is one of the strangest and most bizarre cover-ups in the history of American criminal justice. Something really strange happened here, much stranger than fiction. Is Larry alive still? And if so, did he have a reaction to your book? Larry has read some chapters. I'm yet to send through the hard copy to him, and uh, I'd be very interested to see what his reaction is. Um, I anticipate it as much as I fear it. Oh. Uh, although he's a, a lovely man with some very interesting ideas, he's also perhaps one of the most hard-headed people I've ever met. What part of the book do you think he might be sensitive about or disagree, just the way that you're framing his theory or the vulnerability he felt when he was being attacked by everyone? Oh, absolutely not the latter. Okay. I feel as though an important part of the book is showing how 
vilified and ridiculed Larry was for putting forward a very sensible theory. It was just the fact that nobody really understood what he was trying to say. Hmm. So I, I know that he won't have an issue with that part. In fact, he's read that part and I know that he's happy enough with it. Good. But he will be, he will be rather aggravated by the fact that I believe that his theory is wrong and that there's forensic evidence inside the house of a bird's presence that proves that the attack was not limited to the outside path. What are lessons learned from this story, do you think? Specifically, your angle of this story, what's the lesson learned here? Beware of ridicule. You know, it's very easy to mock or make fun of new theories that you don't understand. And it's very easy to uh, deride the individuals who put forward those theories. But, you know, I guess the lesson is reserve your ridicule for once you've looked through all the evidence. Then ridicule away. Make make as much fun as you want. But I think I think in this case, the most upsetting feature of it really is witnessing so many people misunderstand what Larry is even trying to say and what evidence his theory is based on. And yet there just there's this gleeful mockery that was filling the newspapers, that was all through the media, uh, and none of it even had a sort of basic grasp of the evidence that he found to support his theory. And, um, you know, just because a theory sounds outrageous, it's not good justification to ruin somebody's life. And I think his life really was ruined through those decades. A postscript to this story. Titty Smith says that Larry Pollard, the neighbor who developed the owl theory, had read Death by Talons and has now changed his mind. He has come around to the view that a bird made its way inside the house. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.